0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: In a crisis that's mostly invisible, it's one of the most striking images so far. A medic in bright green scrubs stands on a crosswalk in Denver. He's standing in the way of a huge white pickup. A protester in a Stars and Stripes shirt leans out of the window, waving a placard. It says, Land of the Free. The photo suggests America is as divided on ending the lockdown as on anything. But is it really? With 192 days to go, this is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prideau, The Economist's US editor, and this is a podcast about the 2020 elections. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, can America open up and keep COVID at bay? The governor of Texas says he can corral the coronavirus. Floridians have returned to the beaches. Southern states that have avoided the worst of the pandemic are relaxing restrictions on restaurants, gyms, and hair salons. President Trump is encouraging the reopening, but public support for maintaining restrictions remains strong. In this episode, we'll hear what people think of relaxing the lockdown in small town Wisconsin, and hear from a medic on the front line in the Bronx. We'll also find out where ending social distancing might be most risky. As ever, I'm joined by John and Charlotte. John, last week, your recommendation for ice cream over pasta took America by storm. Have you got any more lockdown tips for the nation?
2: Oh, man. You know, there's nothing more cliche than a quarantine baker, but I have just bought some rye flour that I'm nurturing my sourdough starter with, and I'm very excited to see the results. All
1: right. That sounds good. Tell us about how it goes. Charlotte, how about you?
3: I'm well, just like any sensible professional, I spend most of the day hiding from my children, but uh, (laughs) generally doing fine.
1: Well, you've escaped them for the next half hour, so let's make the most of it. Adam Roberts is also joining us from Chicago. Hi, Adam. Hey, John. You've been out doing some actual journalism this week. Tell us about it. I'm jealous. Yeah, it was exciting to get out and talk to real people, even
4: if it was from six feet apart from them. Um, Yeah, I went up to Wisconsin, which is a state divided like many states on this question of how to relax the restrictions. Uh, Most people there, I think, still support the governor's restrictions on fending off coronavirus. But there's a noisy few, including protesters, who want a quick return to ordinary life. So I drove to Janesville, which is an old industrial city in southern Wisconsin. It's an important political city. Paul Ryan used to be the representative from there, from Congress. It's seen some economic recovery in recent years. And I thought it would be a good place to hear from people how they felt about the lockdown. What's the name of the
0: cafe? Uh, this is a bodacious brew, yeah. a block 42. Um We have two other connected shops. Uh, My first
4: stop was at a cafe beside the river, right in the center of town. And then an olive oil shop. I've been there before, and it's a popular place with a young crowd. They came for live music, espressos, and fancy teas. The young server there was called Aya. We talked about the protests.
0: It's quite ridiculous at this point. I feel like people are really being selfish right now. There's a lot of at-risk people and a lot of people that... Maybe we haven't lost anyone, but there's people who have lost a lot of people due to the virus. And I think people are being really inconsiderate of that fact.
4: She's in favour of maintaining the lockdown for now.
0: I would support it. Um, yeah, I mean, they're the government's trying to do the best they can. They sent out the stimulus checks, I mean, maybe till May at the longest. But it depends on how people... All these orders and if they're
4: Not far off was the White Oak, a near deserted bar and steakhouse. This is your tavern. Yes. It's an amazing building. I asked the owner, John Briggs, how his business is doing. People are staying home.
5: They're afraid they're going to get something, you know? Yeah,
4: yeah right now
5: I think the governor has got us pretty well shut down. Mm. I don't know how long I was just trying to read in the paper to see what they all were doing. But mm. It uh, don't look good for a little while anyway.
4: The puppy's run for 40 years is like a time capsule, except for the flat-screen TV playing a chat show. Fake leather swivel seats that line the bar. There are jokey signs on the walls about trading your wife for a gun. Wow, what a room. Some intriguing military memorabilia.
5: This This is my uniform. I was in the Korean
4: War. Oh, wow, okay, yeah, it says Briggs on it, I can see. A couple of bazookas. Well, this is my rifle. Oh,
5: yeah. And here is a picture of one right after the ceasefire. Right,
4: right. And an aquarium containing two enormous but unmoving fish. I asked him if he'd support the protest planned for Friday in Madison, Wisconsin's capital.
5: I don't know whether... Well, maybe it does some good, I don't know. I, I guess I mean it from the old school before they protested and all that stuff, so but I suppose it does some good or they wouldn't do it. I don't yeah. know.
4: Well they those folks say they want to reopen the economy. Well I
5: think our governor clamped down on us too hard here. Yeah, right. <clears throat> A lot of the stuff he did actually didn't really be involved with our place, but We have to follow all our rules, so...
4: So maybe he set the rules for Milwaukee and Madison... Yeah, yeah. ...but don't necessarily have to apply here in Jamesville. Not us little jerks. (laughs) Okay. Wisconsin counts hardware shops as essential business, so they're open. I stood in the sunshine in the car park of Ace Hardware... ...as a few shoppers wheeled their trolleys. A man with heavily tattooed arms and a small grey beard was about to climb into his red pickup. Could I ask you your name? Dusty. And do you live here in Janesville? Yes, I do. And can I ask what you think about the shutdown and how it's affecting your life? Oh, big time. He told me he struggles to get by doing gardening and other odd jobs.
5: Got uh, laid off, now I do trees. So yeah, it's affected a lot of people. So how are you making a living now? Basically, whatever I can do. Yeah, Yeah. We're living from paycheck to paycheck. Yeah.
4: You know, he said the virus you know, had changed his politics.
5: I don't think Trump handled this the way he should have. I think a lot of people looked at this as more of a joke or something that the government's trying to sneak up on us and, yeah. and not looking at this as real, man. Yeah. You know, I'm 50 years old. I've never seen nothing
4: like this. Is there something specific that you want the government to do? Is uh, it about giving Start financial looking out help? for us, yeah.
5: us little people, man. The people that live from paycheck to paycheck. We ain't, we ain't upper middle class. Yeah. Start caring about us. Would this affect how you vote,
4: if you vote? Oh, yeah. Uh, do oh, you, yeah. Do you mind? Oh,
5: no, no, it ain't going to be that same, dude, i tell
4: you that. <laughs> so last time round, you, you went for oh, him? Oh, yeah, yeah, not this time. would do it this time? No. Yeah. No, let me down. Is that because of the yeah. coronavirus? Yeah. So until this After Dusty moment, left, I got into conversation with two more men.
2: Daryl Gerritsen.
4: Daryl, wearing bright yellow sports no, clothes yes, and sipping on a milkshake, said he wants the restrictions gone.
2: I don't feel it should be... Uh Locked down completely. Churches need to be reopened. That's for one thing.
4: Right. You're not worried about the public health side of it then?
2: No,
5: because if people are going to get it, they're going to get it. But churches need to start opening up their doors. Right.
4: His friend sat behind the wheel of his pickup agreed.
5: Yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous. It's stupid. Yeah. You see people die more of the flu than you see this coronavirus. Right. They just posted the other day 70,000 people survived this thing.
4: It's, it's just, open
5: it's a fake thing, just so the Democrats can take over the U.S. It's all it is.
4: As for how the president has dealt with the crisis,
5: I think I think he's handled everything perfect.
4: Jeff was a fan. No,
5: no president in the United States has ever done anything as much as he's done.
4: But they had a stark warning about what could happen if the restrictions didn't go soon.
5: If it doesn't get lifted, it's going to be a big riot, and then we're going to have our hands full. Yeah. You and think that's
4: there what might it's be coming to. Disorder, then. Yeah. yeah. Do, you, do you think that they've kind of invented the virus, or it's invented? Yeah. It's not real. You're not taking any precautions yourself. No, I've been fine. I haven't been sick. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for your time. No problem. Stay safe. Thanks yeah. a lot. Okay. Bye. Yep.
1: Well, Adam, thank you for that. That bar in Janesville with the two bazookas on the wall just sounds very enticing at the moment. What was your main thought as you left the town?
4: Well, as I left the town, I drove to a uh, demolition site on, on the south side. And it, there's sort of wire fences, muddy field, piles of scrap metal. And this is the old site that GM used to build cars at, assemble cars. For the past century or so, they were building cars there. And then in 2009, it finally closed and 7,000 people who used to work there lost their jobs, which is a huge deal for a town like Janesville. And for the past decade or so, the city has been working its way back, scraping its way back to some sort of recovery, it was beginning to thrive again. And then the virus hit. And so it's pretty clear that the people in Janesville, the ones I spoke to, other people who didn't hear in the package, they understand why the public health measures are there mostly. But it's becoming more and more painful for them as the days pass and the weeks pass. And Tony Evers, the governor of Wisconsin, has extended the lockdown to May the 26th. So this is a long time for them to cope with.
1: John, we had a few different opinions from Janesville, some people supportive of Tony Evers, the governor, some people, more people perhaps opposed. What does the polling say about where Americans are on lockdown? Are they broadly supportive? Are they getting sort of antsy about being closed down by their state governors? What's going on there?
2: Well, broadly supportive, I think is a good way to put it. There's a Kaiser Health Foundation tracking poll that they've been doing on support for social distancing measures. And the most recent one shows 80% say the shelter in place measures are worth it to protect people. Um, There's another poll that Quinnipiac did in Florida, where as you know, Ron DeSantis has relaxed the stay at home orders. And even there, 72% say it's a good idea to keep them in place. One thing that suggests to me is that even as governors relax the sort of stay at home measures and try to get people back into work and get the economy moving again, people may just not want to do it. I mean, people may just be nervous about going to a nail salon or a movie theater. And I think there's broad support. People generally understand that the measures are in place for a reason.
1: Those protests that we saw this weekend were a minority of people, and I think there's broad support to keep them in place ultimately it's quite hard to compel people to behave in a particular way right charlotte yeah yeah there are guidelines from state governors there are also guidelines from the federal government can you walk us through what what they are
3: on april 16th so a little over a week ago the trump administration announced guidelines for governors to help them determine how to reopen and they Roughly proceed in three phases with certain criteria that should be met. So, there needs to be a decline in COVID cases over a 14 day period, and a testing program for at risk healthcare workers, a decline in cases of people with flu symptoms, and enough PPE, enough protective equipment, enough ventilators before states can begin to open their economies. The issue with this system is that it assumes widespread testing, which doesn't exist at the moment, and it also doesn't set a threshold for an infection rate. So you need to have widespread testing, not just for people who are symptomatic, but people who are displaying no COVID symptoms. And then you need to have a system in place for tracing who those people who test positive might have come in contact with. There was a report that our piece in this week's issue of The Economist mentions from Harvard, which that suggests To safely reopen, researchers at Harvard think that America needs 5 million tests a day by June. That's very soon. Right now, the daily tests have averaged around 150,000. So, 150,000 to 5 million, that's a really big ramp up that's required.
1: Help me make sense of this, John and Adam. You have federal guidelines that say states shouldn't reopen until there's this testing regime in place. The testing isn't in place yet states are opening up, you have the president, on the one hand, issuing public health advice that's been sort of vetted to some extent by the CDC, on the other hand, encouraging protesters in Adam's neck of the woods in the Midwest to go out and protest against lockdown, and yet also having a go at Georgia's Republican governor, Brian Kemp, for opening his state up too early. So I, it's pretty baffling what's going on here. Can you, can you find a way through uh, this mess? Well, I could offer one more thing to make it even more baffling, if that helps, that uh, there's also pressure coming through
4: the local Republicans. So I don't know if that's directly from Trump. But you look, for example, at Illinois, Wisconsin, other states, you get local representatives such as Brian Steele, who's the Janesville congressman, who want localized approaches. So they want, for example, lockdowns to continue in the bigger cities in Chicago and Milwaukee and so on, but for there to be relaxation in the countryside and in small towns. So in Wisconsin, again, we've got pressure through the Supreme Court, an injunction that the Republicans are asking for to end the extension in Wisconsin. And there's pressure to make this a localized approach. So this is getting very,
1: very hard to follow. Depends where you are, what the restrictions will be. John, you've been writing about this this week. Help us make sense of it. If you're only looking at the rate
2: of infection and at how infection spreads, meaning somewhat at least so far through density, then the city-country split almost makes sense. That is, you want to have a more relaxed regime in the countryside because there isn't that density, the spread doesn't appear to have happened so quickly. The problem there is that as the spread does happen in rural areas, they're just much less well-prepared to handle it. And I think we'll, we'll talk about this later in the show. But our terrific data team did some great county by county morbidity analysis. And what they found is one of the biggest predictors in whether you're going to have a high death rate from COVID in any county is the number of ICU beds and the rate of hospital closures in rural areas for the past decade, decade and a half has been stunningly high. So there are just a lot of counties that aren't ready to care for an influx of sick people the way that cities have been. That's 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 a big concern.
4: And in addition, you've got rural counties with meatpacking plants. So all across the Midwest, you've seen lots of examples, South Dakota, Wisconsin, up in Green Bay, Illinois, Iowa, where you've got these dense populations in small towns who are suddenly seeing big outbreaks of of COVID-19. So even the rural areas are at risk. I think
2: that's a great point. People may not live cheek by jowl in rural areas, but they often do work cheek by jowl.
1: All right. Thanks, guys. Adam, take care of yourself. Thanks for dropping by. Goodbye, everyone. Bye. Take care. Before we move on, a reminder for our listeners, if you don't have a subscription to The Economist, you're missing out. All The Economist's coverage of the pandemic is available at economist.com slash coronavirus. To receive 12 issues for $12 or £12, head to economist.com slash pod2020. The links are, as always, in the show notes for this episode. Let's turn to how reopening looks to those on the front line of the pandemic. Charlotte, you've been in touch with a medic in New York City.
3: Yes. So I wanted to know how health workers are coping. And a couple of weeks ago, an anesthesiology resident at a hospital in the Bronx started sending me these really vivid voice memos that she was recording in between shifts. And they really give you an idea of what battling the pandemic is like right now. And as we continue to have this conversation about when to reopen the economy, it's worth keeping in mind what the inside of these hospitals feels like.
6: So this week I was in the operating room for a couple of days. I uh, did the anesthesia for a man in his 60s who needed a below the knee amputation due to COVID. So a lot of people think of COVID as kind of respiratory illness, but unfortunately it also causes coagulopathies. It messes up how your blood clots. And this man had a significant blood clot in his leg. It caused the leg to need to be amputated below the knee. And it's tough seeing these patients come in this sick, and a lot of them aren't making it. This morning I came in and I was put on the ICU. I spent good 40 minutes at least trying to track down the proper protective equipment before I went to the floor. I finally did track down a gown. Yesterday I used a gown that got blood on it during a surgery, so I had to discard it and get a new one, but it's tough to find it. So when I get up to the ICU, I have a list of the patients there and one of the patients on my list was no longer there, and they're cleaning his room. The hospital's unfortunately run out of body bags. We have other bags to place patients in, and I'm looking out a window right now onto a loading dock where they're placing two bags with patients onto the refrigerated trucks. It's been tough, it's one of the things that You know, emotionally, it's tough because you can't really deal with the consequences of seeing so many people die. People that you were taking care of the day before that seemed to be improving and they passed away, or, you know, people that were not improving and that you knew were going to pass away. But it's a lot of people, and it's scary. The one thing that I have fear about, it's not so much getting it myself because I believe I already have it and same thing for my family my family's been dealing with it but my fear is that the government will think that we're ready to reopen the economy and that we'll have yet another wave of patients just as sick as this wave of patience has been. I feel like we're finally kind of slowing down in terms of admissions and it scares me that we might be in the same position in a month or two if we reopen the economy quickly.
3: The latest updates are a bit more hopeful. The PPE situation has improved, and that's in part because medical staff are supplying their own. It's also because friends from high school and even her landlord have been sending her masks.
6: Today was really actually the first day where I really felt confident in saying, "Okay, it looks a little different. Not necessarily in the hospital, but I do feel like when I'm driving to work in the morning, I don't see as many ambulances. This morning, I actually didn't see any ambulances. It's only a 10-minute drive, but for the last couple of weeks, I've seen four or five ambulances on my way to work every single morning. And today, I didn't see any, and that was a different experience because each one of those ambulances that I was seeing was carrying a COVID patient to one of the area hospitals. So I'm really hoping that we've kind of at least flattened the curve. From my perspective, from what I've seen on the front lines, reopening the economy is something that I view with quite a bit of trepidation and definitely some fear. I know firsthand from my own family how COVID can be upon us before we even realize it. And I think that's something that a lot of people who haven't had firsthand experience maybe don't realize is that it's so silent until it's not.
1: Well, Charlotte, the image of your friend gazing out the window of her hospital, looking down and seeing the body bags going into the refrigerator truck really brings this home, doesn't it?
3: Yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing, because as everyone is at home, us included, the debate can start to feel a little abstract. And in many ways, it's not, both because you have doctors and people with family members who are in hospitals and seeing how this disease can ravage patients. And then also, you know, these economic questions, we had, again, unemployment figures this week that continue to bring uh, just an ocean of joblessness across the country. And and so it's worth remembering the human toll. And it was very clearly illustrated uh, by this doctor who continues to be working so hard.
1: So, John, if you're an anesthesiologist working in a New York hospital and you're seeing lots of patients dying of COVID Nineteen. You could imagine why you might be against opening up if you're in Janesville and lots of your friends have lost their jobs and don't have an income coming in. You could imagine why you might be in favour of reopening. But is there also a partisan bias here? I mean, in almost every area of American life, there is. So it kind of be surprising if there wasn't on on coronavirus. But I'm I'm interested in in how big the gap is between. Democrats and Republicans on support for things like stay-at-home orders, lockdowns, whatever you want to call them? Well, we have an
2: ongoing poll, um, the Economist YouGov poll. And this week, we asked about stay-at-home orders and their effectiveness. And there's a 15-point partisan gap between Democrats and Republicans, meaning 15% more Democrats think that stay-at-home orders are effective than Republicans do. And within that, the groups most likely to consider stay-at-home orders effective are graduates, African Americans and Hispanics, which pretty much sounds like the Democratic coalition. So unfortunately, you have seen the same sort of partisanship creep into the response to the virus that you have seen creep into the response to almost everything else in American life.
1: Okay, thank you both. We'll have more on which parts of America can expect to be hit hardest by COVID once lockdowns are lifted in just a moment.
0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: One of the most interesting things in this week's Economist is the graphic detail page. The data team has been looking at which counties in the U.S. are likely to be most at risk when lockdown restrictions are lifted. I've been talking to Dan Rosenheck, the Economist's data editor, about how they did it
7: as these lockdowns start to get lifted which eventually they will uh there's every reason to believe that the virus will start spreading faster again and to parts of the country that it is not yet hit hard and what we wanted to know is okay let's say that covid19 winds up infecting most americans winds up um being pretty much everywhere. Well, in that case, then the map of where it kills people at the highest rates may not look anything like what it looks like now, where the rate at which it kills people is closely associated to where it's happened to break out first. So we built a model that tried to find the factors that predict where COVID-19 death rates are likely to be higher and lower, and then project that out to the whole country.
1: And tell me about the geographical pattern you found. Which parts of America does the model suggest we should be most concerned about?
7: So it leaves a really clear geographical footprint. So far, the biggest outbreaks have been in a few major cities, New York, Detroit, New Orleans. But the model clearly shows that the greatest vulnerability is in the South and Appalachia. These are parts of the country uh, that are generally unhealthy. There are parts of the country that don't have a lot of intensive care unit beds per capita, which is another important predictive factor in our model. And uh, their rural areas have a lot of old people. So uh, if you look at the map that we've published, there's basically a giant red splotch in sort of the bottom right third of the United States. That's obviously very troubling, and it, it, you know, particularly as
1: so far as we can tell, and you made the caveats early on about the lack of testing, so it is really hard to tell. So far as we can tell, COVID nineteen hasn't hit Appalachia and the South quite as hard as it's hit uh, New York State, for example, yet. And yet, there's the sense in America that it's time to reopen. Various governors talking about reopening their states. Some hope in New York that it's past the peak in terms of mortality,
7: at least. The
1: model kind of suggests that's premature, doesn't it?
7: Yes, I'd say so. Certainly, I don't think states in the South and Appalachia should be reopening, as some of them have announced they are starting to do. There's some amount of just randomness in which places got hit first, where you happen to get a couple of super spreaders. And then there's some of the, the variables that we just mentioned. So it it spread first and fastest, where you had a lot of population density, like New York, for example, or where there wasn't a lot of social distancing. But COVID-19 can be a slow, methodical killer as well as a sort of blitzkrieg one. And because population density is lower in, in much of the South, you wouldn't necessarily see hospitals getting slammed all at once because the virus is spreading so fast the way you did in like Queens, New York. But I think you would have a much longer plateau and just a sort of steady drip, drip of deaths for a long time um, if this is allowed to spread.
1: So Charlotte, New York State, where you're sitting, is the centre of the epidemic at the moment. But it sounds like the South might, in fact, be the worst hit by the time this thing is over.
3: Yeah, the South has this combination of demography, lax restrictions on movements and a lack of access to healthcare that together add up to a worrisome situation. We had a good piece run in this week's issue about the South and looking at this question in more detail. It cites data that in four southern states, Louisiana, Florida, Tennessee, and Georgia, those states had faster growth rates of COVID in the first 36 days after they had a confirmed case than either Spain or Italy, Italy obviously being completely ravaged by the coronavirus. And it's not just about ICU beds. Um, There were many southern states that declined Obamacare's offer to expand Medicaid to a broader share of the population. And there you have higher rates of uninsurance. So there are ways in which past political decisions may come back to haunt these states, because people may not have the care they need and are already in a more vulnerable health state.
1: John Fassman, you know the South well, you were the economist correspondent in Atlanta for many years. If COVID-19 spreads through the South, how do cities and states pay for the care that southerners will need? Well, I
2: think the question of city and state finances across the country is a really important one right now. And I think that the fundamental problem here is that cities and states just can't spend money the same way the feds can, right? The federal government can spend money it doesn't have, and it can run up big deficits during downturns as it's doing now and as it should do. But 46 of the 50 states in America have constitutional amendments requiring that they run balanced budgets, and the other four have rules that basically do the same thing. And that Also makes sense, right? States can't print money like the feds can, and there's no mechanism for states to declare bankruptcy. But right now, states are facing a crunch from both sides, increased spending to fight the virus, and massively decreased tax revenue because people aren't going anywhere or buying anything and because businesses are shut down. So New York, where I live, is looking at a $15 billion revenue loss this year. And when something similar happened after the 2008 recessions, states had to dramatically cut spending and workforce and raise taxes. And that also had knock-on effects. It made the recession longer, which also makes sense. If states raise taxes, they're taking billions of dollars out of the economy. And that's not an argument necessarily to cut taxes, because states need to fund essential services somehow. This time, the Fed has jumped in early. They've started to buy billions of dollars worth of state and municipal bonds. But some states are forbidden from issuing debt, and one idea going around now is direct federal grants to states. Uh, You've seen a bill from Bob Menendez and Bill Cassidy, a Democratic Senator from New Jersey and a Republican one from Louisiana, and that bill would give $500 billion directly to states. It's gonna be really tough to get that through a Republican-controlled Senate. Mitch McConnell is really lukewarm to the idea,
1: but it also looks like just a dent in what cities and states might ultimately need. Charlotte, let's bring this back to 2020, because this is, after all, a 2020-themed podcast we've been building the data team, Elliot Morris in particular, who's a frequent visitor to this podcast, has been building an election forecasting model. And he and I've been talking about when to unveil it. And we thought we'd wait because one of the big factors in election forecasting now is the state of the economy. And because of COVID-19, the economy's gone haywire, and it's hard to know how long that effect will last. But one of the weird things looking at the polling is how little it's moved. You know, you would have thought that coronavirus would have upended American politics in some dramatic way on the presidential level. But but Donald Trump's approval ratings haven't moved that much. And the Trump sort of Biden horse race polls haven't moved a whole lot either. So this event that you would, might think would have transformed American politics on the presidential level hasn't so far at least.
3: Yeah, it's interesting. There was a poll that just came out from Reuters that showed in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, which are, of course, very important battleground states, that about 45 percent of voters said that they would support Biden and 39 percent said they would support Trump. And that's a little bit better for Biden than it had been, but not a dramatic improvement.
1: Well, as we said at the beginning of the podcast, there are still 192 days to go until election day. So although the armchair pundits may be getting impatient, Joe Biden's probably still got a bit of time to introduce himself to the nation before November. It's quiz time. Charlotte, you were on a hot streak last week. Can you keep it up this
3: week? I'd wager to bet no. No. I think the chances of me keeping it up are extremely slim.
1: Do you think you may suffer from mean reversion? Well, let's see how we go. Earlier, we heard from a medic in the Bronx. The first mention we could find of the Bronx in The Economist is in a story about a run on the banks, the so-called Panic of 1907. The Knickerbocker Trust Company, which was one of America's biggest banks at the time, collapsed after using its funds to try to corner the copper market. The piece contains a vivid description of panic-stricken throngs descending on the banks in Harlem and the Bronx. The reporter saw fit to explain which American slang word, which, the piece says, corresponds to the English word brass. How's your 1907 slang?
3: By brass, do you mean brass?
1: I mean brass. <laughs> yeah. Is it uh, is it Moxie? Charlotte.
3: That sounds right. I'll just I'll just put my lot in with Fasman if that's allowed.
1: That will not save you. Uh, the slang word in question was dough. Ah. Give us back our dough! The crowds yelled. The cry was taken up in unison. our, our reporter reported, who eventually provided the dough to end the crisis. What year is this? 1907? 1907. Was it one of the big robber barons? John, Mr. Morgan. Yeah, it was J.P. Morgan. Point for Charlotte. He used his own money to shore up the banks in 1907 uh, at a time when the U.S. Treasury was impotent. So, Charlotte, that hot streak remains. You have one point. John Fasman, null point for you. Oh, man. Thank you, John. Thanks, John. Good to be here. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you. That's all from us. If you've enjoyed this episode, please give us a review and a rating. Thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week.